Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, writer Amber Dre's heartbreaking story about living in motels with her mom when she was a kid, where one of her only friends was her copy of Hearts Bad Animals. You know, one day it was dark and they still hadn't come home yet. And I was really hungry. I didn't have any food. I didn't know where they were. This was the late 80s, so there were no cell phones. So I decided that I was going to pull out the yellow pages and just start calling businesses and seeing if my mom was there. But first, all right, business up front. Usually if I'm going to talk about the upcoming shows, I'm going to do it at the end as kind of a, hey, if you're in New York City on this date, come by and see the show, whatever. But I wanted to talk about our upcoming show right now because this lineup is crazy and I want to talk about it and I can't wait until the end of the show. So June 6th at QED in Astoria, New York City, our usual weenie roast, people telling stories about songs, of course. But this time we've got Hemda from Keith and the Girl. I did Keith and the Girl actually back in January or February. And for almost the whole show, we talked about whether or not people should go to jail for incest. So let's just say that Hemda's appearance on my show will be different than that. And then we have Jeffrey Marsh, who, if you don't know who he is yet, find him. He's a Vine superstar, and he founded the Don't Say That So Gay campaign and is an advocate for feeling good about yourself and being yourself at all times. And actually, he and I go way back. And I say that in a way that it's like, I'm not old. And so to say, oh, we go way back, doesn't carry that much. But it's like in my head, it doesn't seem like that long ago that we met, except 1997 is a long time ago at this point. Yeah, that's when we met because we co-starred in our college musical production of Cabaret. And, and not as like the two leads, we were the two old people singing about pineapples. So from... Tiny seeds, mighty oaks grow. And then on the show, June 6th, we have DJ Spooky, which is awesome. DJ Spooky has done everything imaginable. And he was just telling me that he's got a new book coming out called The Imaginary App. But he's incredible. And, you know, just side note, I last month was working on the Tribeca Film Festival because it runs, you know, like two weeks in April toward the end of April. And at one point, Robert De Niro did smirk at me. So I got the full working on the Tribeca Film Festival experience. So the thing is, though, they had DJs come in at different points who would play a live score to a film they were screening. So you'd be watching a film and the DJ would be scoring just based on what he saw and what he was feeling. And they had Z Trip. I was really excited about that. But I was reading about this and I came across DJ Spooky, who at this point was already doing the show. And I don't know how I would not have been aware of this. Sometimes you just miss things that are huge and you go, whoa, how did I miss that? But he had done something like that. Gosh, it's got, I think, 10 years ago or so, where he took Birth of a Nation, you know, Birth of a Na 1915 movie about the Civil War and the heroes of the movie are the Klan. So it's like that. But he took that movie and made Rebirth of a Nation, where he took that movie and then he scored 
over it, you know, kind of bringing DJ culture and that style to a movie like that and just watching the two together, incredible and haunting. And not like my silly little attempts. One time I tried to watch The Wizard of Oz. You know, I, I bucked the whole, well, everybody's done it with Dark Side of the Moon. So I watched it with Nevermind and was marveling at how well that worked. And it's like, oh, the Tin Man is becoming unrusted while something in the way plays. Yeah, that's nothing compared to Rebirth of a Nation. So find that too and check that out if you haven't. So anyway, that's what we have on Saturday, June 6th at our live show. Hemda, Jeffrey Marsh, and DJ Spooky. You can get tickets at QEDhistoria.com. And I don't always say this as the scare tactic of you better get tickets or it's going to sell out. But let's just say I strongly recommend you get tickets for this one. All right, that was business. Now party in the back. So here's the thing about having a biweekly show. I love it. It's great because every two weeks we just kind of show up and we talk about music and then we go away for another two weeks. And then boom, there we are again. And it just keeps happening like that. I like that. I don't know what the future holds for becoming a more frequent show, but at this current time, I like being a bi-weekly show. The one thing that's mm, frustrating about having a bi-weekly show is having to wait to talk about something that's timely today. This must be how last week tonight feels. Yeah, we're exactly the same. But it's that thing of, well, something is happening on a Wednesday. This is the thing everybody's talking about on a Wednesday. And I've got to wait a few days before I talk about it. And then by the time you hear it, it's like, oh, well, well, that happened last week. We're on to this next thing now. And so for some things, I'll be honest, for some things I'm like, well, is it this important that I talk about this thing that Jay-Z said last week, you know, on this show? And I'll kind of make a decision like, well, I don't really have to talk about that then. But if it's something really big and something I really want to talk about, I will make the exception, even if it's something that happened last week or that everybody was talking about last week. So for this time, I wanted to talk to you guys about the last Letterman show. So Letterman, as you know, went off the air last week after 30 some years in late night. And I have to be honest, I have not watched the show as appointment television, like I was doing in the 90s, staying up to watch Letterman, staying up to watch Letterman. I haven't done that since the 90s, maybe the early aughts. To be fair, I'm not really doing that with any late night talk show. I mean, I'll watch The Daily Show or Last Week Tonight, but just at random times later in the week, usually closer to the day. So I haven't really watched Letterman since doing that in the late 90s, early aughts. But it was still a really sad moment for me because David Letterman is responsible for one of the best days of my life. And it went a little something like this. In 1996, I was a freshman in college, and I, I went to school in Philadelphia. And I decided to send away for tickets to see Letterman, and I got them, and it was for like, it had to have been late October, because I remember his guests on the show that night were Don Rickles and the New York Yankees. And I think they had just won the World Series because they were spraying champagne all over the place and shooting champagne at Don Rickles. It was a good time. But I go to see the show and I had no idea how a talk show works. I didn't know the whole setup of it. I, I mean, the only thing I knew, I, I knew how a, a high school musical was set up and ran, but I had no idea how a talk show worked. And we get there, me and a friend of mine that I, I convinced to come, and we realized that he comes out before the show, before the taping, and you can ask him questions. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is my, my moment to, to ask him something and I'm blank. And people are asking him like, will you marry me and can I have a ham? And I'm just blank. I wish I could sit here and go, there are so many ideas that were running through my head and I just didn't know what one to pick. Nope, just blank, flatline. I had nothing. I do remember though, that as he left the stage to then go start the show, there was interstitial music and the band played once in a lifetime. 
And I remember thinking that was cruel because this was this was, you know, for me, like, yeah, you got one shot at this and blew it. But as we left that night, I thought, no, I don't accept that. I don't accept that that was my only chance. I'm coming back. And this time I'm going to be ready. So I sent away for tickets again and I got tickets for I think it was March 19th, 1997. And I thought this time I'm going to be ready. Now, in my dorm room at school, I had these eight by tens of celebrities that I bought at this flea market in Buffalo when I went to visit my cousins one summer. I just there were just all these eight by tens. It was like, who did I have? I had Mick Jagger and Harry Connick Jr. It was the most bizarre group of people. David Letterman, Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland. So, yeah. So I what I did was I signed one or two of them. Like I signed the David Letterman one in the corner. I just signed Dave Letterman. And then I had some friends sign the other ones so the handwriting would be different. And then I put them on the wall in my dorm so people would be like, oh, my God, you met Mick Jagger and David Letterman and Judy Garland. Like that didn't match up. But still, it was like a fun thing to have on my wall. So what I did was I took that picture of Letterman that I signed in the corner and I thought, I'm going to go to the show. And before the show, when he does his question and answer, I'm going to ask him if he minds that I forged his signature on his picture because I can't sleep at night knowing that that would bother him. And, you know, he should absolutely know that I would never do this on checks, that I would stop at pictures, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, so I'm going to do that. So I have a good idea, at least I think. And now the only thing standing in my way is whether or not he calls on me. And you can say, well, you know, you can't really control that. You can't control what direction he's looking in and and whose hand he's going to pick. But no, I was determined. And in my mind, I absolutely could control that. So the first thing I did, I went to Urban Outfitters, where I would shop anyway, and I bought this shirt that was bright red. It was this bright red button-down shirt that had little yellow and blue and green triangles all over it. It was so bright that if you shook the shirt up and down, it looked like the triangles were jumping up and down. Like, that's how crazy bright this was. And I wore that to the show with a pair of uh, denim overalls with the one side opened because 1997. And I'm like, you know, but the shirt, it was what was important. That was bright enough that he was going to see me. The second part to he will definitely see me was we had to be down front. So another friend of mine, different than the friend that came with me last time, we went to the show and we got there, I would say around 10 or 11 in the morning, and we were third and fourth in line, something like that. And you stand there all day. You stand there until early afternoon when they sort of give you a number of what position you were in line, and then you come back and then that's the order that you line up in to go into the theater later. So we're standing there. It is March, so it is cold. It's so cold that Campbell's had sent around soup ambassadors. I don't know what you call them. They were just people with like suit backpacks that were just shooting little like out of these little tubes, just Dixie cups of soup and handing them out online. I don't even know what flavors they were. It was just hot liquid. That's all I know because it was so cold that day. And as you're doing this and you're standing online, there is nothing else to do then talk to the people around you and and sort of make friends with them. And it's fortunate when you're standing around interesting people. And the guy that was in front of us, it was him. And I don't know if it was his mom or another friend of his, but we got to talking to him and he said that he used to work at Letterman. Now, at the time, I was like, "Ooh, I'm so impressed by this. Now, looking back, I, I will say that I do wonder why someone who had worked for The Late Show at any point would now have to 
stand online for tickets for it, just like me, schmuck from Philadelphia with a picture and a dream, you know. So I didn't I don't know. But we're going to stick with that. Yes, he, he, he did work there. And but he was he was talking a lot about what Dave would do in rehearsal and how he likes to keep it cold in there and just telling little stories and stuff like that. And I told him, I said, oh, well, I have um, an idea of a question I'm going to ask. And he kind of said, what is it? You know, because he's heard all of these. And so I told him what it was about the picture and I showed him the picture and the autograph and his face changed and it lit up and he goes, he's really going to like that. So we're waiting online all day. We get our numbers. Yep. It's like three and four, four and five, whatever it was. We go away, get a piece of pizza, come back, line up. Now we're finally going to be brought into the theater. It was around five, five thirty. So we're brought in and we sit down and I'm right in front. I mean, I planned that. I fought for this. I'm right in front. And I noticed that the only thing just kind of in front of me and over to, to the left a little bit, is just a big monitor. It's not blocking me from the stage in any way. I even, I think, did a couple of test runs where I put my hand up just to see like, yes, I'm reaching above this monitor. Yes, he was definitely going to see me. Had the red shirt on. This had to work. So he comes out to do his pre-show bit. And the first thing I noticed, other than that, he's very tall, but I could have figured that, is he was also very tan and his eyes were very blue. And I did wonder, though, about why he was very tan. I didn't know if that was the makeup, that that's why he was very tan. I mean, because it was March. But that was something I noticed. And he did a little bit and he touches his toes. Yay. And everybody's going crazy. And he asks, so does anybody have any questions for me? And my hand shot up. Like I was ready for this. And he looks in our direction, like at our section, and he points not at me, but at the person that's right on my right. So to the left of me, you know, from his perspective. And he says, though, as he's pointing, a woman in a red shirt with like, yellow and green triangles on it. Oh my God, it's my shirt. That's me. (laughs) To quote the great Phil Collins, I've been waiting for this moment for all my life. So I stand up and I, I have the picture in my hand and he says, oh, she's brought something to read. And I said, no, it's a picture. And he said, is it of me? And so I showed him and he kind of like rolled his eyes like, oh Jesus. And he goes, all right, you know, with a wave of his hand, show them And so I turn around to the rest of the Ed Sullivan Theater and I say, all right, everybody, listen up. This is a picture of Dave from about 1980. I bought it at a flea market in Buffalo. I almost did not buy it because I thought it was Joe Piscopo. I said it is autographed, but it's not autographed by Dave. The thing is, I autographed it myself. And Dave goes, ma'am, 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 have you stopped to breathe yet? And I was so just, I mean, the adrenaline is pumping so hard. And I just went, what? So he says, so what is your question? And I said, well, do you mind that I forged your signature? Because I can't sleep at night knowing that you mind or that you would think that I would forge it on checks. And he says, no, 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 I don't mind. I don't mind. He said, now sit down and shut up and we'll start the show. And woo! And the audience went crazy. And I, I wish I could describe this. You know what? I have I was not a big drug person. I really didn't do drugs, but I imagine it was a lot like this. So it's probably good I didn't do drugs because to feel like that all the time, wow. So the show starts. And as it's starting, the guy that had been next to us online leans over and is like, I think he's going to put that in the monologue. So be ready. And I was like, oh, my God, like everything that had just happened. That was enough. I didn't need anything else. I talked to this person and who I'd been watching on TV and I had all the top 10 books. I even had a little crush on him. So that was enough. I didn't need anything else. But, oh, my God, I'm going to be in the monologue. Okay. And I look at the monitor. Remember, that's on the floor near me. And I thought, if I see red on that. I'm taking it for all it's worth. So he comes out and he starts the show and he touches his toes. He does that whole bit. 
and he says, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name's Dave, Dave Letterman, and everybody claps. And he goes, no, 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 no. America's best friend. And he says, by the way, by the way, if you're looking in from around the country tonight and you're interested in getting an autographed photo of me, this is it, everybody. He says, we have a lady in the audience from Buffalo. He didn't know. We have a lady in the audience from Buffalo. Contact her. I look at the screen and I see red and I jump up and just arm spread. Liza with a Z. And the audience goes crazy. And again, there's that drug feeling that it's probably really good. I never got into that. And it's so exciting. And I sit back down and he says, so she says she's that she's got this picture and it's of me. And I thought, oh, great. Here comes a lawsuit. And he comes over to me and puts his hand out to say, give me the picture. But here was the problem. I didn't have the picture. In the time between the pre-show segment and the show starting, a producer came over to me and said, you know, can I take the picture? And I said, is there something wrong? And he said, no, no, I'm just going to get Dave to sign it after the show. So I had given him the picture. So I'm pointing to him and I'm saying, he took it. That guy took it. And Dave is like, of course, I get no luck at all. He said, I go hunting in the fishing season. I go fishing in the hunting season. So the producer gives him the picture and he shows the picture on camera with my signature on it that says Dave Letterman. Nice and casual of me, Dave Letterman. That's how I signed it. And the audience is cheering again. And in the middle of all of this, he turns the picture around so now that only he can see it. And he's just looking at himself in 1980, this younger David Letterman. And in this, all of this cheering and this activity and, you know, millions of people watching at home, he just kind of took this very brief moment for himself to see himself at this age, whatever world he was in when this picture was taken. And he just kind of smiled. And he, he took the picture back over and he put it like where the band was. And he says, thanks so much, ma'am, to me. And they, the camera panned to me again. And he said, we'll see that you, you get a car or something. And I said, thank you. And everybody cheered again. And that was it. I'm hard pressed to tell you what happened on the rest of the show. I think Cindy Crawford was on. It was just that feeling. I did it. I set out to ask this person a question and I asked him one that he then put in the show. And then as after the show, as as we were leaving, the producer, you know, says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he runs backstage with the picture and he comes back out with it and he hands it to me. And I said, thank you so much. He said, no, thank you. You were great. And as we're walking out, the guy, my friend, I wish I had gotten his name. I, I forget. But he said, let me see the picture. And I said, why? And he said, well, sometimes they get someone else to sign it. And he said, nope, that's Dave. And Dave signed it in the middle. He said, thanks for coming, David Letterman. It was amazing. That's the power of all of this. And it wasn't about like, ooh, I was on television or ooh, a famous person or ooh, I'm famous myself. I mean, there was a little bit of that. I was 19 years old from a small town in Pennsylvania, but it was something else. It was something as simple as saying, I'm going to do this thing and doing exactly what I set out to do. I think it was the first time in my life I had done something like that. And the feeling was overwhelming. And watching the last show and segments from the last show the other night. Of course, I thought about this story, but I also thought, and so for 30 years, every night for 30 years, he was doing that exact thing that he did for me, for someone else every night. He gave someone that feeling that he gave to me, but just that feeling, not the picture, because that picture signed in the center, thanks for coming, David Letterman, signed in the upper left-hand corner, Dave Letterman. There's just one of those. And that's just mine. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun. 
Yeah, it's almost too perfect that that's the only song I remember the band playing. But hey, sometimes it's perfect. Almost never, but sometimes. All right. Our story for this episode is from Amber Dre. Amber is a writer and an editor, and she's been published by McSweeney's, and she's been on Risk. But this is her story about being 10 years old and having to live in motels with her mom and her mom's boyfriend, where her only friend a lot of the time was a copy of Hearts Bad Animals. When I was the ripe old age of 10, I (laughs) had to move into a hotel in northern Florida with my mother and her douchebag boyfriend. And this is after we had gotten kicked out of a trailer park. And uh, my mom had left her um, second husband earlier that year. So this was just a downward spiral continuing to who knows where. And uh, so the, the hotel was, it was like a comfort inn or something equally mundane. And it was a n- nice enough room. It had an uh, AC and cable and it smelled like mothballs from the polyester bedspread and cheap art. And But I couldn't leave the room because um, my mom didn't want me to, you know, want anybody to know that I was in there by myself. And I couldn't, uh, I didn't go to school because we didn't have a permanent address, so she didn't want to enroll me in school. So I would just stay in the hotel by myself and uh, wait for them to come home from looking for work, whatever that meant. And we had a Rottweiler Doberman mix puppy named Titan, And they would take him with them every day and have him tied up in the back of their pickup truck. And, um, you know, I would just wait for them. Like, uh, they were supposed to be home by lunch. Sometimes they wouldn't get home until like three or four. And then, you know, one day it was dark and they still hadn't come home yet. And I was really hungry. I didn't have any food. I didn't know where they were. This was the late 80s, so there were no cell phones. So I decided that I was going to pull out the yellow pages and just start calling businesses and seeing if my mom was there. <laughs> so the first place I called was um, was a hardware store because... Jeff had experience in construction and my mom did retail when we lived in California. So uh, I called the hardware store and I said, "Um, is my mother there? And the lady was like, who's your mother? And I said, oh, her name's Andrea. She's Filipino. And she's like, no, she's not here. Then the next place I was like, well, my mom does have a perm and uh, Jeff has a full thick head of feathered hair that's very long in the back. He looked sort of like the singer Richard Marks, which was very annoying to me because I loved Richard Marks and I hated Jeff. So he was totally ruining Richard Marks for me. So I call this hair salon and the lady picks up and I'm like, um, is Andrea there? Trying to be more professional this time. And uh, and she's like, who's Andrea? No, there's no one here by that name. And I was like, okay, thanks. 
And then the third place I tried was a Mexican restaurant because my mom one time for her 28th birthday, we went to a Mexican restaurant in California when she was still married to Steve and we were still pretending to be happy. And uh, the the past birthday was her 30th birthday. And we just went to Jeff's um, gross relative's house that smelled like spoiled milk. And uh, my mom was really excited that the guy at the package store carted her for her PBR. So, <laughs> woo, 30. So I called the Mexican restaurant, guy picks up, like, is my mother there? He's like, no, sorry. And I knew he was going to say that, but I started crying anyway, because I was like, where is my mother? And uh, finally, they finally walked into the hotel room carrying a bag of Taco Bell. I'm like, Taco Bell? Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) So I like run to the bag and she's like, I got your favorite pinto beans and I just like tear it open and I'm like, cheese and beans and red sauce and it was like the best thing I'd ever eaten and I completely forgot about being lonely and starving all day. Then we had to move to a motel And the motel uh, was um, a definite step down. (laughs) It made the it made the trailer park look up like a private gated community and um, you know you could just pull your car up right to the door at least it had a stove and a fridge so my mom put some food in there for me and I could also keep Titan in the room with me so I had my little dog I could go outside there too so I would just like go outside every day with my Walkman which was the only thing my mom had in pawn (laughs) and uh, pop in my favorite album at the time, which was Bad Animals by Heart. My dad had gotten me the tape when I went to visit him in Connecticut that year. I'd push play and turn it up to 10, and, you know, the entire album is great. But my favorite was Alone, which is the greatest power ballad of all time. And, (laughs) you know, it starts with those minor chords on the piano, and then Ann Wilson's voice comes in all sad and sultry, and then the bass and drums and guitar just, like, explode at the chorus, and then Nancy Wilson's harmonies join in on, how do I get you alone? And it's just, like, amazing. And even though the song is about waiting for your lover who never comes, I related to it because it was, like, about, also about depending on someone who just doesn't really seem to be there for you. And uh, I would fantasize about one day starting my own band called Heart because I thought you could do that. And, you know, I would be rocking out to thousands of people on stage just like the Wilson sisters. And then I'd be rich and famous and I would never have to live in a trailer park or a hotel or a motel again. And then when I would get home... After listening to my tape, Titan would inevitably have peed on the carpet because he was not house trained. (laughs) And uh, my mom wouldn't let me take him out because she was afraid he would get hit by a car. So uh, I would try to blot up the, the urine as best as I could, but it still smelled pretty bad in there. And then when Jeff and my mother would come home, Jeff would go ballistic and rub Titan's snout in the carpet and yell at him. And one day he got so angry that he picked Titan up 
and slammed him head first into the ground. And the dog just lay there. And um, Jeff took the dog away. And I never saw Titan again after that night. And I'm not really sure what happened to Titan. But uh, I'd seen Jeff do a lot worse to my mother. So I knew not to ask questions. Shortly after that, my mom sent me to stay with my dad while she figured out how to get away from Jeff. And I didn't see her again for four years. But at least I was finally in a stable, safe environment. And I got another dog, too. Thanks. Yes, Amber Dray. And you know, I have to be honest, sometimes someone tells a story like that at a show and I, I put it on here and I don't know what to say afterwards. And I don't have anything that I feel needs to be said other than to say, thank you, Amber. That was brave of you, both when you were 10 and living it and now for telling it. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And like I was saying before, in the business up front, if you are in or near New York City on Saturday, June 6th, come on out to QED to see our live show with Hemda, Jeffrey Marsh, and DJ Spooky. As always, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Did you know you can find us on Spotify? You can find us on Spotify. You can also find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, right here where you found us, and sometimes in your other hand. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. 